on Galatians, and uh, I was thinking about this whole series, and I thought, you know, uh, I want to kind of recap a couple things. We've had a couple weeks off from that series. I wanted to go over a couple things with you in relation to Galatians, and that just rhymed. Didn't mean to make that happen, but it did. And uh, But in order to understand the book of Galatians, you've got to understand circumcision, okay? Now, I know you all giggle and laugh, and I'm not going to get real graphic. Don't worry, okay? But it is in the Bible, so we've got to discuss it just a little bit, all right? Because you're not going to understand this book fully until you understand the Old Testament law just a little bit and why circumcision happened and all that kind of stuff, okay? So if you ever read the Old Testament, you probably thought to yourself, you keep coming across this word circumcision in the Old Testament, you wonder to yourself, why in the world was this such a big deal back then? And so you probably ask the question, what is up with this whole circumcision thing? What's the whole purpose? This is a weird deal in the Old Testament, okay? Let me take you back just a little bit. Uh, Abraham, everyone I think knows who he is, father of many nations, and uh, he um, had many sons, as the song goes, right? So he, he, um, he was promised by God to be the father of many nations, okay? And God said, as a sign of this covenant, this promise I'm making to you, we're going to have the sign of circumcision. Now you can probably think that Abraham thought, can I bargain here? Can I, like, we change the rules? Can we get, like, a tattoo or something? Something besides circumcision where God said, no, we're going to have the sign. The sign of this covenant is going to be circumcision. Okay? Now, uh, the whole point of this, this sign, you can think of a sign as, like, it, it's an outward visible symbol to an inward reality. Okay? Kind of like this wedding ring that I have. Um, this wedding ring is an outward visible symbol to my love for Courtney. And she has one. She actually has two. I paid for both of those. I know she has two. And she has two rings to symbolize her love for me because her love for me is greater. Never mind. Um, and so, anyway, this, this is an outward symbol to an inward reality. Okay? My love for my wife. Uh, some of you guys here today probably have a necklace or be a tattoo yourself or even a ring that means something to you. And if someone says, what does that mean? You can say, this means something more significant than just the outward symbol itself. Okay? And so God gives this sign, this, this outward symbol to an inward reality to Abraham. Now, here's what the, the, the inward reality was, symbol, was symbol, symbolizing. It was, it was symbolizing purity. Okay? So as the people of Israel, the people that were going to follow after Abraham... God was saying, I want you to be a pure nation set apart. And and so we're going to use this physical symbol to represent this inward reality. You're going to be the pure people of God, my chosen people. And so throughout the Bible, you'll see uh, the words circumcised and uncircumcised related to all kinds of things besides just, you know, the physical circumcision thing, all right? Things like, uh, God would say, you people, the Israelites, you have uncircumcised hearts, you've got uncircumcised ears, uncircumcised eyes, and you're kind of going, that's a weird picture, but that's what he would say. And, and he said this because the word circumcision or uncircumcision was, came to mean a, a spiritual reality. And so when God would say, your hearts are uncircumcised, he was saying, your hearts are impure, your eyes are impure, your minds are impure. And so let's be honest. The act of circumcision didn't make anybody pure. 
Okay? Just like this ring doesn't make me married. It just symbolizes marriage. It symbolizes an inward reality. It was an outward symbol of this inward reality. It's kind of like baptism today. Uh, you're baptized as a Christian. Now, does the, um, does the water actually wash you clean spiritually? No. But it's a symbol of you being washed clean in the way that Christ has washed you clean from your sin. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. Romans 2.28, Paul says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that, that if you are someone who calls yourself a Jew, somebody might call themselves a Jew, and they might be a Jew racially, but they may not be a Jew spiritually. In other words, they may not be someone who's really has a, a, a personal faith with God. It's really following after God with their whole heart. They might have the outward symbol, but they don't have the inward reality. Okay? The same thing is true of us today. Many of you come here, you're part of the church, you're part of what we do here, but you're just going through the motions. You're just walking through this building on Sunday, unchanged. You're walking through your life unchanged, and you're just, you have these outward symbols of the faith, but you don't allow it to really penetrate your heart. In Colossians, Paul makes a similar point. In Colossians 2, verse 11, he says, In Him, meaning Christ, in Christ, you were also circumcised. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Okay? And so what he's saying is that not only do you have this outward circumcision, but you actually have an inward circumcision of the heart. When you, are, when you become a Christian, you are changed. And so not only do you undergo physical surgery with circumcision, but you undergo a spiritual surgery when Christ changes you. He transforms you. And so if you're going to understand this whole thing that Galatians, the Galatians are dealing with, you've also got to understand an aspect of the Old Testament law. Now, people often think that in the Old Testament, you were saved by works, and in the New Testament, you're saved by grace. That idea is wrong. It's not true. You see, the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was mainly to point out sin. It was to show someone that they were a sinner in need of a Savior. So in Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, Do not covet. So what he's saying is that the law was given to the Israelites to be like a mirror. To reflect back to them how sinful they really were. This morning when you guys woke up, you got out of bed, and most of you probably got dressed in front of a mirror, got ready in front of a mirror. For those of you that did not, I can tell. But you got ready in front of a mirror. Why? Because the mirror, it, it points out to you what is wrong with you, does it not? It, it points out to you that your hair is all matted to your head. You've got bed head. It points out to you you've got, you know, crusty eyeballs. It points out to you what is wrong with you. So you go to the mirror, you know what to fix, right? You know how to fix it and come to church looking somewhat presentable. Okay? This is kind of what the law did. The law was like a mirror reflecting back to the people of Israel how evil they really were. 
So they could see their need for a Savior, see their need for Christ, when He came to die for them. And so you can say it this way, the law shows us, the law shows us that you and I are lawbreakers. A couple weeks ago, my parents were in town, and they, they flew into Austin, the Austin airport. And so I was taking them back to the airport, and on the way to the airport, we're having this conversation. I'm the kind of person, I'm in the conversation when I'm driving other people. I am uh, I'm a speeder. And, and so uh, I, I'm going kind of fast. I don't realize I'm going fast. My dad's in the back seat. He peers over the seat, and he goes, you better slow down. I look at the speedometer. I'm doing like 85, Okay. Please don't tell your parents I'm telling you this story. And so I slow down. We go to the airport. I drop them off. I get back in the car, head back to Temple, get a phone call from Courtney. She says, Dave, I need you home quick. I need your help. So me being the awesome, great husband that I am, I decided to go a little bit faster than I was previously. So I kind of lay on the gas just a little bit more. And up ahead, I see this, this cop on the side of the road. He's already pulled someone else over. I'm thinking, okay, better slow down. Don't want to get a ticket today, okay? I keep going. Once I get past him, I go a little bit faster than I was before, okay? And so uh, I'm going along all around this corner, and there's a state trooper parked right there behind this hill. And there's that moment where I'm just like, that, that you feel like you're kind of suspended in midair, and you're just kind of going, oh, no, you know? And, and so... I'm in the left lane, of course, like any good person does, trying to fool the cop. I get over to the right lane. I'm like, da, 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 da. you know, I'm going slow now, you know. And so I'm over in the right lane now, just behind some big semi, like, you know, trying to blend in with whatever. And uh, the guy, I see him pull out, and I'm like, oh, no, he's coming after me. He's coming after me. Sure enough, he speeds up, goes around the guy behind me, pulls in right behind me. His lights turn on. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. This is happening again, Okay. And so the guy gets out. I'm one of those people that whenever I get pulled over, I just get really nervous, right? I feel all clammy. My heart starts beating real fast. I just can't think straight. And so this guy gets out, and, um, and he asks me a really simple question like, uh, where are you heading? And I couldn't even, like, say the word, like, tipple, tipple. And it didn't come out right. I'm thinking, this guy thinks I'm probably high on crack or something. He's going to search my car. I'm just, all these things are going through my head at this moment. And so he gives me the ticket for doing nine over, okay? So I get this ticket. And so I average about probably maybe a ticket and a half every year, okay? And, in fact, last year, I think around this time, I think I told a similar story about me getting a ticket one night, if I'm not mistaken. And so, but our country has speeding laws, okay? And when I get pulled over, the law is there to remind me that I'm a lawbreaker. When it comes to our, our country's laws, I'm a lawbreaker. When it comes to spiritual laws, I'm a lawbreaker. You and I are all lawbreakers. And so because we're lawbreakers, we each need a substitute. Someone who could live out the law perfectly. In fact, most of you probably think of, of Jesus as being someone who just died in your place. But Jesus is so much more than that. Jesus actually lived in your place. Jesus actually lived. He fulfilled the whole law. He lived it out perfectly to the T because you and I couldn't measure up. He fulfilled the whole law. So once Jesus came, 
parts of the Old Testament law changed. There was no more need for sacrifice because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. There was no more need for circumcision because they now had baptism to represent this inward reality. Let's talk about the Galatians. The Galatians, instead of allowing this Old Testament law to reveal their sin, they used the law to get prideful about their works. The exact opposite of its intent. So in other words, whenever they would they'd follow the works of the law to the T, and they would pat themselves on the back and say, look how awesome I am, look how amazing I am, look how, how great of a believer I am. And so instead of allowing the law to convict them of their sin, reveal their sin like a mirror, they allowed the law to make them prideful and to look down on other people. And so what's happening is all these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, are coming to know Christ. And so these Jewish people are now saying to the Gentiles, okay, now that you're, you're a Christian, you need to get circumcised and start following the Mosaic law so that you can be saved. That they thought you had to follow the Mosaic law and be circumcised in order to be saved. That was the whole problem in Galatia. So there was a question that was raised by those Jewish people, and it was, should non-Jews have to follow Jewish law in order to be saved? And so Paul writes this letter of Galatians as a rebuke, scolding the Galatians for adding to the gospel. He says the gospel isn't Jesus and circumcision. The gospel isn't Jesus and the Mosaic law. He's saying what you guys need is, is the naked, pure gospel. It's Jesus and nothing else. It's Jesus and nothing else. Now somebody might ask the question, why in the world would the Galatians want to add anything to the gospel? Why would they want to place themselves under a greater burden of works? Why would they do that? Well, the answer is pretty simple. It's because receiving grace requires humility. You know, if you've seen anybody on the street begging for food, there's, there's a humility factor, a humiliation factor when it comes to having to ask someone for something for free. And when you receive it, there's a, you feel kind of worthless. You feel like, I don't like this feeling of getting something for free. And so most of us, our human nature, there's something in us that just doesn't like being humbled that way and having to swallow our pride and receive God's grace for free. And so for us, today, we still add to the gospel. We still add to the gospel. Because in our pride, we want to feel like we've earned it. We want to feel like we've done something to deserve the salvation we've been given for free. And it's rooted in pride. This brings us to Galatians chapter 2. Look at verse uh, 1. Galatians 2 verse 1, it says, Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Here's what he's saying. Paul took two men on a trip from wherever he was to Jerusalem to see the other apostles, Peter, James, and John. He took a man named Titus 
and took a man named Barnabas. Now Barnabas was a Jewish person, a circumcised Jew. Now Titus was a non-Jew, not circumcised. And so his whole purpose in bringing these two men, contrasting figures, to Jerusalem was to present them before the apostles and say, are both of these men not equally Christian? And those apostles said they accepted Titus into their, into their fold. They accepted him as a believer, even though he was not circumcised, even though he was not following the Mosaic law, like the Jewish people were doing at the time. And so Paul's using that whole example to say to the Galatians, look, even the, the, at the epicenter of the Christian faith, Peter, James, and John, these three men who are, who are apostles of Jesus, even these men accept my brother Titus. And he's not following after the Mosaic law. So how can you, as the Galatians, how can you reject people like him? How can you reject people that God himself has already accepted? Look at verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ, Jesus, and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. So there are these men. Paul refers to them as almost like spies. They're coming to spy out the freedom that these Christians have in Jesus Christ. And they're trying to place on these people this, this burden of the Mosaic Law. Now, to some people, this whole debate about the Mosaic Law and circumcision seems like just a really dumb argument. You're kind of like, well, who really cares? Just, just let them be circumcised or let them not be. Just don't worry. Just whatever. Just do whatever. But, but Paul is trying to be very, very bold and honest and confrontational in this book because what he's talking about is so important. This was a huge deal. In the early church. This, if Paul didn't stand up for truth in this situation, then the whole church could have taken a turn towards legalism. The whole church could have taken a turn away from freedom and right into slavery. And so here's what Paul is trying to say to us. He's trying to tell us that, that beliefs matter. What, what you and I believe matters. Truth matters. Scripture Matters. Theology matters. All the things that you may not like to hear and talk about, those things matter a great deal. And so they're having this debate in the early church, and Paul is looking at him saying, guys, this is the breaking point. This could be, this could be the turning point of the church that we don't deal with this, this sin, these false brothers trying to put us under the bondage of the Mosaic Law. Now, if you think about that in relation to us, if, if I were to hold up these two columns back here of one on the left, one on the right, emotions, when it comes to your spiritual walk with God, emotions, experience, intimacy, worship. On the right you've got theology, beliefs, scripture, truth. If I were to hold those before you and say, which one of those do you prefer in your walk with God? My guess would be that most of you would say, one on the left. I love the experiential part of my faith. I love the the music. I love the 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 warm fuzzies I get whenever I pray. I love I love this intimacy thing with God. I love the spirituality thing. I love the feeling. I love the emotions of, of my walk with God. But if I said to you the things on the right, what do you think about that? You'd say that's just kind of boring and dry. Theology. I just picture old dusty books. 
beliefs, scripture, truth. I mean, these are things that most of us would say, yeah, I guess that's kind of important, but the things on, I really like the things on the left. Those are the things I really, that kind of make me go spiritually. You see, most of us as Christians, we want intimacy with God, but we don't want theology and truth. We want to feel God, but we don't want to have to think about Him. We want to bring our hearts to Him, but leave our minds at the door. And so we, we value experience over truth. To the point for some people where experience becomes our truth. There's no question. We live in a completely just experiential culture, don't we? We live in a, a world where what you experience becomes your truth. In other words, if you're going through a tough time as a Christian, and, and a man comes into your life, if you're a girl, and, 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 and he's a, not a godly guy at all, but he's, you know, he's meeting some emotional needs that you have, that in that moment, that experience becomes your truth now, becomes your new reality, becomes your absolute truth. And so you forget the idea that I'm not supposed to be linked together with a non-believer. But right now, this is what I'm going to do. And so what you're experiencing becomes your truth. And you're not rooted, you're not grounded in what you believe or why you believe it. And so if you ever want to experience God, if you ever want the things on the, the left of those columns, you've got to experience the things on the right. Now, this is a picture of uh, where I'm going to be flying to tomorrow. And uh, this is La Jolla, California. And so while you're in school tomorrow, you could be thinking about me as I'm somewhere in the middle there at the hotel we're staying at. And uh, and you guys jealous about that? Just a little? Don't lie, don't lie. Uh, but this is La Jolla, California. Now, I know most of you would trade going there for being in school tomorrow. But let's just say you had the resources to get a car and pay for the gas and the hotel fares to get out to La Jolla, California this week. Now, if you're going to make that journey, that trek, uh, you would need a map, of course. And uh, now a map is nothing more than just a piece of paper and some lines drawn on the map to make a map, right? So, so the map says La Jolla, California on the piece of paper, but everyone knows, of course, that, that, that that's not the same thing as the place. Obviously, they're different. That's beautiful. A map is not, okay? But, but without the map, listen to me, without the map, you'll never find the place. Without the map, you'll never experience the place. You see, theology and truth are like a map. It's, it's not God himself. Theology is not God himself. But without it, you'll never find him. Without it, you'll never find God. And so without truth, theology, scripture, we're never going to experience God in the right way. And so what you believe matters. Truth matters. Scripture matters. If you try to drive to California, one wrong turn, and you're in Canada. If someone gives you directions, all it takes is one wrong turn, right? And so here's what, listen up, here's what Paul's saying. 
What you believe about the gospel is so important. Because one wrong turn may be the difference between slavery and freedom. If you veer off course just slightly in the gospel, Paul is saying it could mean the difference between slavery and freedom. And that's where the Galatians are at. Listen to me. If, if you want to grow spiritually, if you really want to grow spiritually, you have to care about the deep things of the faith. You have to care about theology, truth, scripture, beliefs. Because if you don't, if you don't care about those things at all, all you focus is on the experiential aspect of your faith, then your whole life is going to be one confusing mess. And it'll just go in circles. And so Paul is saying, what you believe matters. The truth matters. And so for the Galatians, what is the truth that they need to hear? They need to hear the truth that you are accepted through Jesus Christ plus nothing. You're accepted through Christ plus nothing. You, you can't add anything to the gospel. And so for us, if you don't know and live out this gospel, this, this pure gospel, if you try to add things to the gospel, then it might be the difference between slavery and freedom. If you've seen people that, that approach the Christian life and they, have just a, they don't have any joy, they have no life, no vitality to their faith, if you look deep into what they really believe about the faith and about the Christian life, I would say it probably goes back to this, this idea they've added something to the gospel, some kind of legalism, some kind of like churchiness to the gospel, and it's enslaving them. They aren't set free, and you can see it in how they conduct themselves in their, in their faith. And let's be honest, most of, most of us here probably see Christianity as a bunch of rules. You see it as a bunch of, it's just this list of rules that you do. We don't see it as a relationship. And I've said this before, that of course Christianity has its rules. I'm not the guy to say, no, no, it's all about relationship, no rules, no rules, no rules at all. I'm not going to lie to you. It has some rules. But don't ever forget this truth. That the relationship is primary. The relationship with God is at the center. The rules flow out of the relationship. I said before that, of course, my relationship to my wife, it has rules. Right? But I don't sit there and ask the question, okay, why can't I cheat on you again? Tell me why. I don't ask that question because I know that inherent to the relationship, there are just rules that flow from that. But the relationship is the center. The relationship is primary. Some of you guys have forgotten that when it comes to your walk with God. You see it just as a bunch of rules. You see it just as a list. And so we're going we're gonna to finish up here by doing some discussion at your tables for the next uh, probably ten minutes or so. And we'll close out when you guys are finished. But um, if there could be a leader at each table that can sort of be the leader of the discussion, that would be great. Everyone got a leader at your table? If not an intern, at least one student can volunteer. And there's a sheet on your table that has uh, questions on the sheet. And some of these are pretty, you know, intense questions, but just talk about them, discuss them. If you can't really go anywhere with one of the questions, just move on to the next one, it's fine. But discuss those for the next ten minutes or so. We'll wrap up.